0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. If you like what you hear on the SRB Podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. When I talk to my students about the siege of Leningrad, I always show them pictures of covered monuments and buildings. What I didn't know, though, was the larger story around these attempts at protecting the city's treasures. Why was it done? And what was the larger meaning behind it? How does the story of preservation of Leningrad fit into the larger narrative of the siege? And what about the restoration of the city after the war? To get some answers to these questions, I turn to Steve Maddox to talk about his new book, Saving Stalin's Imperial City, Historical Preservation in Leningrad, 1930-1950, to published by Indiana University Press. Steve Maddox is an associate professor of Russian and European history at Kinesis College. He is the author of Saving Stalin's Imperial City, Historic Preservation in Leningrad, 1930-1950. to published by Indiana University Press. Here's Steve Maddox. So your book, Saving Stalin's Imperial City, is about the efforts during World War II to to protect, preserve, and then reconstruct Leningrad monuments and architecture after
1: the war. So talk a bit about what drew you to this topic. I guess what originally drew me to the topic was, I guess during my undergraduate years, I spent a lot of time in St. Petersburg. And of course, I, I, I fell in love with the city. And when I went to graduate school, I realized that I wanted to do something on on the history of the city uh, under Stalin. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, this was the, the time when people were moving into the post-war years. And I thought an interesting topic would be to look at uh, the reconstruction of the city, the way people internalize the identity of the city, uh, as opposed to sort of a larger Soviet identity. So when I went over to do dissertation research and spend the year in the archives, and I was looking through the files, and I kept kept coming across these, you know, looking at things about the the restoration of the city, I kept coming across sort of, you know, we need to fix this monument, we need to devote X number of rubles to restoring the hermitage, or we need to do this or that. And then I started looking back into the years of the blockade and saw basically the same thing, that all of these resources were being spent on uh, preserving monuments of the imperial past rather than saving things like hospitals and schools and homes. These things were being saved and and worked on as well, but it seemed to me to be a peculiar paradox that they were working on imperial monuments and monuments of the Russian past that was that had been so vilified and and so many symbols of it destroyed in the nineteen thirties and nineteen twenties. so that got me to thinking and basically that's you know I ran with it from there.
0: Now, why don't you talk a bit about the historical and symbolic importance of Petersburg slash Leningrad as a imperial city, as a symbol within, say, not only the consciousness of the
1: residents, but also the country itself? Well, I mean, St. Petersburg, Leningrad is this interesting city in in Russia, in Russian history. Uh, It was a city that was was built or began to be built in 1703 by Peter the Great, who wanted a, a window to the west, a, a seaport. Uh, so it became this this amazing creation, really, uh, that developed from 1703 that used foreign architecture, uh, Northern Baroque, and, and over over the years, Neoclassical style was implemented here. Uh, so it became this, this this tremendously magnificent creation that that exuded imperial power. So it became the symbol of, really, of of Peter's westernization of Russia. Peter's attempts to uh, bring Western culture and Western identity into the country and then have it diffuse outward from there. So, of course, it has tremendous meaning in that sense. St. Petersburg, Leningrad is also the, as as the Russians would call it, the cradle of the Russian Revolution. This is where the the Russian Revolution began. Uh, The Russian Revolutions, three of them, in fact, largely as a result of the industrialization in the city uh, and, the, and the centralization of, of the, the proletariat here. But St. Petersburg also has this sort of dual nature to it, which I think is really interesting. At, at one and the same time, it's this magnificent creature, uh, creation of Peter the Great, but also it's, you know, it's a creation that was built on bones, right? How many lives were lost in the creation of the city? And this is well borne out in things, if you, if you, you, know, if you read uh, the Bronze Horseman, right? This, you know, this beautiful city that's destroyed by nature. And it's largely because of, of Peter's desire to build the city, right, in this very inhospitable area. Read things like uh, Nevsky Prospect by Gogol as well, right? It starts off with, there's nothing better than Nevsky Prospect. And then at the very end of the story is, don't trust Nevsky Prospect. It's it's evil. and you'll, You know, all bad things will happen on Nevsky Prospect. So, you know, it has tremendous historic and symbolic importance for for the country obviously, but for, for the citizens as well, for the for the people that live in, in the city. As you point out in your book, historical
0: preservation in, um, in Petersburg and Leningrad predates the war, World War II. So talk a bit about the history of this effort to protect and monumentalize the city and particular, how did the Bolsheviks deal with this contradiction between revolutionary iconoclasm, destroying of the past, destroying of imperial symbols, but on the other hand, preserving the imperial past
1: after 1917? Well, the preservation movement that that develops in the imperial capital in in St. Petersburg, and and to a greater or lesser degree Mm -hmm. elsewhere in the country as well, uh, really begins at the end of the the 1800s, beginning of the 20th century. And it's largely in response to the the development of the city uh, in the period of industrialization. So whereas you had this the way a lot of these preservation-minded individuals, artists, intellectuals of all sorts, looked at the city, they saw this wonderful creation, um, especially the neoclassical ensembles, the neoclassical facade of the city. They they felt that to be under threat by the, 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 the construction of um, eclectic-style buildings uh, that populated the city, largely as a result of, I guess, the nouveau riche, uh, the industrialists. And they saw this as something that was threatening the very... The artistic masterpiece of the city, and 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 sought to to prevent uh, the destruction of the beauty and the magnificence of the city. So, in the early 1900s, you begin to see these intellectuals, these artists, these architects, uh, create newspapers, uh, journals, uh, things like. World of Art, in bygone years, uh, and these were used as platforms to to make a case for uh, preservation, to make a case for the the, the need to to uh, revere uh, and to to look up to the the, the, the wonderful surroundings or the, the wonderful creation that is Saint Petersburg. Uh, so they began to to create these uh, these platforms to argue for the preservation of the, of the city's imperial monuments, artistic monuments, and over time they you know, developed other institutions like the Museum of, the, of Old Petersburg. Uh, and it's these people that really came to the forefront uh, with the February Revolution. When the February Revolution breaks out, these individuals believe or come to the understanding that something needs to be done to pr- protect the, the city's monuments, uh, this, the city itself from the iconoclastic classic tendencies of the masses. Uh, so they form commissions, they work with the provisional government, they work with the Petrograd Soviet, all with the goal of, of uh, preventing, to the greatest possible degree, destruction and looting in, in, in Petrograd. This continues throughout 1917, and people like uh, Alexander Benoit and others sort of note, you know, they say, I think I have a quote in the book that sort of, Notes that you know of all the the crazy things that have happened during the the revolution. One of the of all the most mind blowing things uh, that happened is the fact that there has been very little destruction to the city's artistic, uh, sculptural, historic monuments. Uh, so that 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 I found obviously pretty interesting.
0: And this is this is in contrast to say you know the destruction of churches in Moscow. I mean you you point out in the book at one point there is actually less destruction of churches in St. Petersburg and it seems like the changing of
1: the city in general. Is that the case? Uh, well, I think certainly a little bit later, certainly during the, the first five-year plan and, and the 1930s, there's much more destruction in Moscow than there is in St. Petersburg. And I think that largely has a fact to do with that this is the, the, the socialist capital of the world, right? Stalin's intent on creating this, uh, this, this model to display the, the socialist achievements. But even at, at, at the same time, there's still much done in in Moscow to preserve some of the uh, some of the, the historic monuments and artistic monuments, of course. But it's interesting when you talk about the Bolsheviks, because the Bolsheviks, I mean, the Bolsheviks were never fully committed to destruction; they were never fully committed to preservation, at least not during the revolution in the 1920s. So at one and the same time, you can have certain members of, of the Bolsheviks calling for, or at least certain uh, left-wing intellectuals in the country calling for destruction of of the, the past, whereas people like Lenin and Lunacharsky and others, very high positions, were calling for at least selective preservation of of monuments, uh, understanding that you can't completely dismiss the the past. You, you need the seedbed to create a new culture. So moving forward to
0: the the outbreak of the war, I, I found it interesting that you to to kind of create the the context for at least preserving St. Petersburg or Leningrad at this time from the threat of Nazi invasion. You quote a Nazi order stating that the destruction of buildings, quote, falls within the framework of the war of extermination. How does this Nazi order somewhat set the stage for your study of of Leningrad during the war?
1: Well, one of the things I try to do here and as I was working on, on the book, I kept thinking about it more and more, is that we we often have a tendency to look at, especially the blockade, I think, uh, but even many things about the war in general, in isolation from from the, the overall Nazi plans for the Soviet Union, right? This was to become Lebensraum. This was to become living space. Uh, all elements of, of Russian civilization was to, be, was to be erased from this area of the world, right? You, and, you know, I remember... Another historian telling me want a historian of or German historian telling me that the Nazis couldn't very well have examples of Russian civilization in a place where they wanted to show that there was no civilization right so the order that that calls for the destruction of buildings or at least says you know pay no attention to them and destroy them there's no historic or artistic significance here in the east uh, this sort of lays out the general idea that the the German army is here uh, to destroy uh and this, this very destruction, when you begin to think about it, the destruction of monuments imbues them with greater significance or with a completely different understanding. So what was once an imperial monument, a monument to Peter the Great or a monument to Catherine the Great or a building that symbolized the, the Petrine Revolution, is now not just a monument to that, but rather is a monument to that and to the efforts of the Germans to destroy it. And in the case, in the process of restoration, it becomes a monument to uh, the Soviet attempts to overcome that destruction. So it gains a number of layers of of memory and significance. So it's, it's in thinking about the way the Nazis tried to destroy and did destroy, it, that these monuments really become uh, monuments of Soviet history rather than simply monuments of, of um, imperial history. This
0: is, yeah, this is actually really interesting because, you know, we we all learn about how Stalin takes this more, you know he she rehabilitates the church the imperial past becomes acceptable to some extent during the war in a way and, and this goes to my question how much did the war play into the incorporation of the imperial past into a general Soviet history like in in what way did under the Nazi threat, it be became more about not necessarily preserving the Soviet system but also Russian civilization
1: in general. Well, I think it becomes incredibly important during the war uh, during the war and especially in, and perhaps even more so in the postwar period because you not just have the war with the Nazis, but now you have the Cold War. Well, if we start then, you know we look I guess first to to the 1930s when we see this the Soviet attempt to 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 mobilize the population through reverence of the past. So, in beginning in the early 1930s, and, and much more so as the 30s go along, we see a turn away from some Marxist idea that the proletariat had no fatherland, and we see really a, a, an attempt to, to create a Soviet patriotism, a patriotism uh, that called on people to defend the country. And what better way to do this than to use these heroic defenders of the country from the past, people like Suvorov, people like uh, Alexander Nevsky, Peter the Great, and others. So the Soviet people were called upon to think about the past, to use the past as a, um, as, as a mobilizing force. And this became all the more important when the Nazis invade the country. Right? It, it, it gains even more significance, and more and more attention is paid to the past to, to drum up ideas of, of the heroic individuals who, who fought off the Teutonic Knights or who fought off the Mongols or who fought off Napoleon. So historic symbols then become incredibly important during the war and they become used, they're used as, as symbols that, can, that can, they can drum up feelings of patriotism. Uh, so monuments themselves, the destruction of monuments not only become, uh, becomes the destruction of a building, but it's also the destruction of elements of the past. And so there's this effort to save that past through saving the buildings, uh, through saving statues. And other things like this. And this continues into the post-war period as well, and I think even more so during the post-war period, we see this this reverence for the past, largely because of the destruction of the past, or the destruction of the buildings during the war, uh, but also because of the threat that the the Cold War has created. So throughout the, the period of Stalinism, uh, late Stalinism, we see more and more respect paid to the Russian past, uh, not just in terms of you know, of monuments, but other things. You know, the the Russian cultural, Russian music, Russian literature, and things like this, are uh, become things to be revered uh, instead of kowtowing to
0: the West, if you will. So, as you said, that one of the things that kind of inspired you to look into this subject more deeply was the fact that during the siege of Leningrad, the 872 day siege, you have a lot of resources going into saving, protecting, uh, preserving—you know—architecture and monuments. So, how how were they preserved, and and, and how were they chosen? Like, w- what went into the choosing of say, we need to remove this monument or
1: hide it or whatever? And and how did they do it? At first, when when the war breaks out in June of 1941, uh, orders are circulated to the uh, Administration for the Protection of Monuments, to the Union of Architects and other sort of organizations and institutions in in Leningrad, to immediately carry out the covering, the burial, or or essentially ways to conceal uh, statues in the city. And there are several that are listed. Uh, You know, things like uh, the bronze Horseman, for example, will be one. And there's there's this original list, and I can't remember the the number, I think there's probably 10 on the list or maybe 12. And then a little bit later, a second list of monuments are, are sent around to be, to be buried or, or covered or concealed in some way. So the, the way, I assume, the way that they, I mean, there's never any sort of, you, you never find any in the documents how they came about uh, picking which monuments would be preserved and which wouldn't. But it, you know, it makes sense that they would go after the ones that they considered uh, to be the most valuable. Uh, and to me, the most important uh, in terms of the, uh, the symbol symbolism for both the city and for the Russian state. Uh, and a lot of it, again, had to do with taste of the preservationists, right? Preservationists and people that were working in these departments. Obviously, the, the bronze horseman is the, the best case example, but but also a statue of uh, Krylov in the summer gardens. Why bury that in before anything else? But these were the things that were buried. And was this, is, was this done to protect them from aerial bombing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, prior to the outbreak of the war, there had been a study done by one of the more famous uh, Leningrad preservationists, Makarov, who had looked at the effects of war in, in, during World War I, uh, and especially during the Spanish Civil War, on, on monuments in, in Western Europe. The methods used to protect monuments uh, that were developed during, the, uh, during this period, uh, that is, during, especially during the Spanish Civil War and the first two years of World War II in the West, were then used uh, in, in Russia, in Leningrad as well. So there's, so there's a clear understanding that a new type of war could lead to absolute destruction of the past and, and the country's civilized or sort of cultural and artistic monuments. Now, you know, burying a,
0: a statue is one thing or, or taking off some church bells, but what did they do for structures that obviously could not move, like St. Isaac's Cathedral or the Winter Palace
1: or even some of the, the imperial residences outside the city? Well, for things like St. Isaac's Cathedral, there's the obvious thing that they did was they painted the uh, the domes, the golden domes. They painted them with the sort of uh, this type of paint that that couldn't you know, wouldn't reflect, right? So it couldn't be seen that easily. Uh, now, one of the reasons for this, there's there are two reasons here. It's not just to preserve monuments, even though I think this is one of the most important things here, right? They want to preserve the monuments, but they also realize that these things like the uh, the Peter and Paul fortress, the Admiralty and Saint. Isaac's, all of which have golden spires or golden domes. these are targets. these are things that, that the Germans uh, on the outside uh, on the outskirts of the city can see quite easily uh, can use them for for orientation purposes for, for bombing raids or for, for shelling. so there's there's a there's a there are two reasons for, for, for saving these. Uh, And it has to do with, obviously, preserving the monuments, but also taking away the strategic importance or the strategic advantage given to the Germans. In terms of the the suburbs, there was very little that could be done to the suburbs. There was, in the days before the Germans actually arrived in the suburbs in August of 1941, and September of 1941, uh, a lot of the artistic, uh, well, a lot of the movable uh, monuments, were taken from the palaces uh, in Pushkin in Peterhof and Pavlovsk and elsewhere uh, and and brought into actually put in St Isaac's uh, for storage uh, and other places in the city uh, some other things they were buried and attempts were made to conceal Certain things, but obviously, you know, not everything could have been taken away. And one of the the most sort of harrowing things, I guess, that one of the symbols of, of what the Germans did uh, in in the suburbs was to not only destroy the palaces, but take away things like the statue of Samson Peterhof. That became one. Of, this became one of the more important projects to recreate the statue and have it placed back at the center of the fountain uh, in the immediate post-war period, just as a symbol to show that we're overcoming the destruction of I mean, the. As as
0: you point out, there is a siege going on, there's starvation, there is, you know, general hardships, particularly in the winter. How would you place the story of this, of preservation into the general story of the of the siege of Leningrad?
1: Well, it becomes a central part of it, really. I mean, if you think of it, especially, I mean, I've noticed this more so in, in the years, well, at least in the 2000s when you're there, there's, whenever you go to a museum, whether it be the Hermitage or the... The, the Russian Museum, or especially to, a, to the suburban palaces, the, the destruction of, of World War II and the attempts to preserve the, these buildings during World War II is a central part of the narrative of these buildings. These things, and again, especially in the suburbs where you see this quite clearly, right? The the, the destruction is shown, the attempts to restore is show, are, are shown, uh, and, and the finished product uh, is, is the building that you're standing in at the time. So this becomes an important part of, of of the um, of the history of the blockade. Do you have a sense
0: not not just after the war, but do you have a sense during the war how people who are engaged in this preservation how they understand
1: it within the context of the siege? Well, they they understand that this is something that is fundamentally important, absolutely important, and if you you have to realize that these are people that have devoted themselves to preserving these monuments and preserving the city of, of Leningrad. They work very hard to make sure that these monuments are preserved. And it's not just the preservationists that are doing this as well, but it's in co- cooperation with the city authorities that the monuments are given a great deal of attention. At the beginning of the war, of course, you have the city Soviet calling for the preservation of the monuments, the burial of monuments, and the concealment of monuments. But it goes beyond that. There are attempts to make detailed drawings detailed measurements of many of the monuments internal like within buildings and outside of buildings just in case these buildings are destroyed or damaged during the war and the people that are working on this are given at least in the early period are given workers rations industrial workers rations so at the very height of starvation when uh, many people are living off 125 grams of bread per day which is obviously not enough to live off these people, uh, preservationists, are given 250 grams of bread per day, which is the ration that was given to uh, people working in industry at the time. Uh, so this becomes, as you can tell, uh, you know, a very important project. If, if, I think the, the chief architect of the city, Nikolai Buranov, at one point stated that, you know, uh, we need to do this. We can, you know, things can be destroyed. Buildings can be destroyed. Uh, hospitals can be destroyed. But if we lose parts or, or symbols of the past, things, you know, artistic, creations that can't be resurrected then we're in a great deal of trouble the way you describe
0: this is actually really interesting because it puts it in a frame of you know one preservation two uh, a trauma and then with the need to reconstruct a kind of overcoming that trauma, right? You kind of said it in a a sense of like, we are still here. We're overcoming the destruction that was perpetrated against not only the city, but the country as a whole. So talk a bit about post-war reconstruction and restoration in Leningrad as a form of commemoration of the city, city and its residents during the war.
1: Immediately after the war, or even before the war had ended, really in 1944, when the restoration really began, the city you begin to see architects, preservationists, all people involved in the restoration, in, in the planning of the restoration of the city, uh, talking about the need to imprint the memory of the blockade into every single event that takes place. So. In overcoming the destruction, Leningraders were told that they were that they were remembering the war. And every time there was something published in the press about the restoration of, let's say, the Hermitage, or some other building, uh, some throughout the city, uh, there was always reference to the destruction. So you can never really talk about restoration without talking about the. About destruction, you know. Obviously, the efforts to preserve were there, but once things were destroyed, there was an attempt to bring it back to its original state, uh, and that was the reason for 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 making these measurements and and documenting all of the all of the, the artistic sort of uh, decoration and things on the buildings, and and sculptures and statues and things like that. But there's there's an understanding that if things are completely destroyed, then they can't be restored. So the preservationists are looking at things and saying, unless we have a certain amount of uh, the original left, then there's really no sense in trying to restore because, you know, to use a, you know, we could say it's a disnification really of, of what previously existed. So when, this is particularly interesting in the suburbs where if you look at everything, destruction is almost total. But some of the arguments that the preservations were making is that no, it, it's, it may look like total destruction, but we have, we have found so many elements. We, ha- we can document this. We can put it back together because there actually is so much left. In the rubble, we can pull out a number of things that can help us bring this back to life. And even I think I remember reading this this one sort of uh, communication between preservationists when they were when they're writing to Stalin to say that you know we want to re- we need funds to restore Catherine's Palace for example, and I can't remember who it was that wrote this but he said something like listen don't write and talk about the amount of destruction that was done to the buildings, instead write about what we've saved and how we can re- restore these buildings and with that we'll have a better chance. Uh, of bringing it back to life. So, so that was really important. And you see a number of commissions being sent. to a number of, uh, number of uh, preservations working already in January of 1944, as soon as the buildings in the suburbs were demined, to go out and find exactly what was there so they can sort of begin the restoration process on the basis of what was already there, and rather instead of just recreating, but restoring, right? And that was pretty important to, to preservations. Instead of just re- rebuilding, they wanted to restore. Do you have a sense of how much was just lost? An unbelievable amount, uh, if, if you think about it. I mean, in the center of the city, in, in St. Petersburg itself, the destruction wasn't as total, obviously, right? But in the suburbs, it was not completely total because they did begin to work on them. They, they sought to, to restore as much as possible. But but there was a deliberate attempt by the Germans when they left to to blow these things up, right? The, the case of Catherine's Palace is the best, I think there were eleven massive bombs found in the basement of the building, sort of timed to go off, and it just happened that the Red Army showed up before the before the the palace was blown to smithereens. But there was still tons of damage already done to it. The roof had been gone. There was a great deal that burned down. In places like uh, Pavlovsk, just outside of Pushkin, uh, where the Pavlovsk Palace is to be found, uh, the building. Obviously suffered a great deal during the war, but it, it was in the, the retreat that the building caught on fire and much of the damage was done. So, yeah, the damage was in certain places, almost total. But again, the case was made that we have saved enough. We have found enough, enough fragments of the buildings that we can restore this to its original appearance.
0: How does your story help contribute to the identity of Leningraders? How does this make them n- not just Soviet citizens, but particularly Lenin- citizens of Leningrad?
1: Well, this the story. I mean, especially the story that was perpetrated or, or discussed in the post-war years. That Leningraders are a Leningrader is someone that uh, was not only cultured, right, this sort of tradition of culture and traditional of uh, tradition of thought in the city, but also the idea that Leningraders worked so hard to protect their city during the war. Uh, they worked harder than anybody else, and, and sort of this this, uh, this myth really of, of the Leningrader developed during this during the, the early postwar period. You know, Zdanov was known at the party plenum in 1944 to say that the Leningrader works harder than anybody else. The Leningrader is not afraid of doing work. The Leningrader uh, showed the heroism, bravery, uh, and determination to work to save the city during the blockade, and the Leningrader will continue doing that after. Uh, the blockade now that it's over, uh, and they'll restore that city. So this became a central part of the Leningrad identity, the love for the city, the determination to preserve it, the determination to to restore it. And uh, Zdanov was talking about the need to inculcate these ideas into uh, migrants who were coming to the city after the blockade, and even Leningraders who had lived there prior to the blockade. uh, Now the the idea is to to instill the blockade story into these uh, newcomers or returnees. Uh, and that created a bit of friction uh, in the early post-war period. How so? Uh, well, a lot of people thought a lot of Leningraders, at least when, at least it's reported in the Svotki in this way, in certain letters to the authorities. Uh, a lot of Leningraders felt that the returnees and migrants were, were given too many privileges, and sort of this blockade identity developed. Right? You know, we lived through this. We're working to develop our city, and of course, this this has some basis in, in truth, but also. Like any other myth, it has a number of, uh, point to a number of cases that show that this isn't actually the case as well. Certainly lots of people that lived, through, certain people that lived through the blockade were you know, the same as anybody else.
0: And finally, now you mentioned that the restoration of the city gets incorporated into an important aspect of the Cold War, at least part of an aspect of the Cold
1: War. So how did it fit into the, the Cold War? Well, I think in this sense, the Soviet Union is absolutely destroyed during World War II. Absolutely destroyed, and we know the story of the Cold War and how it develops between 1945 and, and, and 1947, when it really develops into a split between East and West. And Stalin, I think, is and the Soviet leadership is are uh, really quite nervous about the Cold War, about the destruction of the city, about not just the city but the country. I mean, and what this means in terms of the projection of power, right? So, rebuilding Leningrad, rebuilding this imperial city, uh, the magnificence of the city. This is a projection of power, not just to the outside world, but to the Soviet citizens themselves. So they can see that the city has been restored and wonderful buildings. neoclassical ensemble projects power in many ways, similar to the Stalinist architecture of the 1930s and 1980s, right? These are monumental buildings that are meant to project the power of the state. So this restoration of Leningrad and the rest of the country uh, is meant to create or instill a sense of confidence in the people, instill a sense of, of, of power of the state to to rival the West.
0: That was Steve Maddox, an associate professor of Russian and European history at Kinesis College. He is the author of Saving Stalin's Imperial City, Historic Preservation in Leningrad, 1930 to 1950, published by Indiana University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gildery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. (music) Bye.
2: Hello, I'm conducting a survey, and I have some questions to ask you. First off, do you have a fear of a black tangent? Were you born in the year of the rat? Do you cheer and clap when weird rat bands commence? I can tell by your answer, you probably won't frolic with me in the foothills. And that you want your tofu patty cooked, not grilled, but it doesn't matter been enticed and drawn in with my hook and reel. Oprah nods my novel. As you can see, it sells very prominently in Boulder, Colorado. LOL, laugh out loud. You've never known hell so well till you identified with a black crowd. It's a fear of a black tangent, idiot a public enemy spoof now some of your friends will reboot the computer then do a google search and be discouraged when they find that the truth will hurt when they see that i am not their zeitgeist nor am i christ-like nor do i dislike whites i just want a better chance that's most likely i'll sell more records in france